good morning again, and I can't tell you how really, really good it is to be back. I've missed a few weeks here, and I want to say from the bottom of my heart, I want to thank everyone for the tremendous outpouring of support these past few weeks, support that I got from the vestry, from the members of this congregation, even from folks who never set foot in here but receive our newsletter. Your cards, calls, texts, emails, and gifts helped me through a difficult time. I also would like to give props, especially to the vestry and to Chrissy, to Jason Alexander for his leadership and support here at St. Peter's past weeks, and Brandon, who's traveling today, but an amazing, amazing Brandon. I can't tell you the number of folks who have told me how well he handled this crazy time. We are truly blessed to have him among us. Thank you. I'm in a much better place because of, among other things, your unwavering support. Now, under normal circumstances, I'd be tempted to use this time to explain my journey over the past few weeks and how that might provide a template for all of us as we face struggles. And face it, we all face struggles. Under normal circumstances, I'd talk about my life-saving epiphany that, that God loves us because of our flaws, because of our cracks, not in spite of them. And I'll touch on those things, but recognize these are not normal circumstances. We are blessed to have the members of the Syrian Emergency Task Force, also known as SETF, with us this morning. You know, every week we pray for the Wisdom House. At the Peace today, we'll provide a special interfaith blessing and commissioning for the members of this group and our own leaders here at St. Peter's. There will be time in the future to unpack these past weeks together. Just suffice to say that I was visited by a long, simmering crisis of conscience, which led to a crisis of faith. Or maybe it was a crisis of faith that led to a crisis of conscience. But either way, a few relatively minor events plunged me into what has been called the dark night of the soul. I reached out to many of you, to colleagues, to my family, to Mark, to Jason Alexander, who spoke with you last week. As we are called to do in the, as priests in the Episcopal Church, I reached out to Bishop Benfield. Now, you may know the bishop is not known for his soft, cuddly pastoral care. And he gave me some seemingly strange guidance, which I'll share with you. But it proved key to my healing and I think can provide us all some solace and guidance through strange times. So picture this. Down in Little Rock, I'm in the office seated directly in front of him. I recount my woes and slights. He had just come back from vacation, and he was tanned and rested, and I was still a puddle of anxiety and doubt. He listened patiently as I rambled. For a pause, he looks at me and tells me that he, too, has been racked by doubts of late. The situation in the world has led him, he told me. For the first time in my life, I am beginning to think that that quote from Martin Luther King, Jr., you know, the one that says, the moral arc of the universe is long but bends towards justice, for the first time in my life, I think the king might have been wrong. There's no assurance of the future bending towards justice. Well, that was a pretty gloomy message, you have to admit, and I'm sitting there wondering how this is supposed to help me. If he's having doubts as well, how should this make me feel better? And he went on to say something that, was, that really opened it up for me, something along the lines that what this means that what we are called to do as people of faith 
in the face of uncertainty and darkness, when things could possibly and will probably get worse, we are called to witness. To witness. A witness isn't just being a watchful and disengaged presence in the world, recording evil for some future accounting, some future judgment. Witness is taking an active role in the middle of it to do what we can do, what we must do, to counter evil. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of my favorite theologians and founder of the anti-Nazi confessional church in Hitler's Germany, had some things to say about witness. Bonhoeffer calls us to a faith beyond simply social benevolence and charity where we all just get along and do good things. He calls us to a faith which demands an accountability, a clarity on where and with whom we stand in the middle of evil. Bonhoeffer wrote just a few days before he was arrested by Hitler's Gestapo and sent to the same prison where he would be executed a few years later. He said, there remains for us only the very narrow way, often extremely difficult to find, of living every day as if it were our last, and yet living in faith and responsibility as though there were to be a great future. It is not easy to be brave and keep that spirit alive, but it is imperative. What better example could God have given us about this kind of witness than the members of the, of the Syrian Emergency Task Force who are with us today? They have literally, literally been witnesses to one of the greatest places of greatest evil in the world, Assad, Syria. They don't cower. They don't recede. Witness. Witness are the Caesar Project's 55,000-some photographs taken by one of Assad's police photographers of the atrocities committed against Syrian civilians during this so-called civil war. The photographer, codenamed Caesar, hence the name, smuggled them out with him. They were on exhibit at UALR last week, and a selection can be found on the website, SETF website. I invite you to go there. They are powerful. They are disturbing. Witness is Moaz Mustafa, whom we heard speak between the services, who works tirelessly to expose and gain international support and help save Syria. Omar Shogri is a witness, a former detainee by Assad's forces, and now a devoted, articulate, amazing activist for the cause. Omar spent a good deal of last week exhorting Little Rock High School students to follow their passion. See, while many would retreat following an ordeal that almost took his life, Omar uses it, well, he uses it to witness. Natalie Larison, our SETF's Director of Humanitarian Programs and Outreach, she witnesses in her tireless effort to support the humanitarian efforts that are happening in Syria, the Wisdom House, the Women's Shelter, the hospital. Other witnesses we are familiar with, we pray for them each week. The Wisdom House, as I mentioned. School for Kids Orphaned by the War. We also pray for Kansa, Momina, Rasha, for her women's center in northwest Syria. That gets me to this morning's strange and confusing reading from Jeremiah. Yes, I went there. Because it really is about witness, although as you heard it, and as I heard it, you probably thought it was about real estate, or at least about finance. Let me set the stage. Jeremiah's cousin, Hanamel, asked Jeremiah, who's in prison, mind you, 
to buy the family field in Anathoth. Now that is an absurd request. It's the wrong time, the wrong time especially to invest in real estate. Wrong time to invest in the future. It's a time to panic about the present. War is going on all around us. Terror is threatened on all sides. Exile is happening, and Israel's future looks really bleak. But Jeremiah doesn't watch the news. Jeremiah doesn't listen to the prophets of doom on TV or social media or talk radio. Jeremiah knows that King Zedekiah doesn't run the world, that, King, that Nebuchadnezzar doesn't run the world, just like presidents or former presidents or members of Congress or governors or Russian autocrats or Syrian dictators. They don't run the world. None of these really run the world, and Jeremiah knows this. We know it. We know who runs the world. He knows that God runs the world. He knows that God will have the last word, and and here's the good news, the really good news. That last word is not destruction. It's never destruction. God's last word is renewal. God's last word is always renewal. So the people who have Jeremiah as their prophet, who know God as the source of hope and life and strength, people like us, people like the members of SETF, People do not despair. These people do not also live lives of denial. You know, hey, Syria's not happening to me, so why should I care? These people do not live, on the other hand, lives of hedonism. Hey, you only live once, so I'm going to enjoy it. Now, these people, the people of SETF, the people here today, we live lives of radical hope. Radical hope. A hope that doesn't deny reality but knows that God is with us and that God has plans for us. Now, as I prepared this, I thought about how St. Peter's, how we see ourselves as a kind of sanctuary in a town, state, and country, possibly even world, that seems to grow more frightening by the day. We think of ourselves as a safe space, a place where you can be who you are and all are welcome. We love that. Even part of our mission statement in bold letters on a poster as you enter the lobby doors. I wonder if we aren't a better scene as a community of witness. It's more active, less inclined to turn away and to avoid. Our witness is a calling out of the world while being in the world. Witnessing evil wherever we see it. In the sins of racism, in authoritarianism, in gun violence, the sin of anti-Muslim hatred or anti-Semitism or book banning. St. Peter's were in witness in the recent school board meeting here in Conway where sharp words and even physical violence were used to try to push an anti-LGBT agenda. They witness even as they put themselves unknowingly in harm's way. Continue to lift them up in prayer. We witness because we know know God has plans for our welfare and not for harm. Plans to give us a future with hope. A hope which isn't simply some sentimental feeling, but a genuine ability to trust and an orientation which serves as a commitment to action. We respond. An orientation which allows us to see the world differently and to do our part to bring that hope-filled vision to life. Like Jeremiah, we are made for hope. We are bound for hope. I sent an email to the Vestrian staff this past week after my return and the insight that led me to remember again 
that I too am made for hope, bound for hope, just as we all are. In it, I told them, quote, about 10 days into my leave, it suddenly came to me that God's grace and love are especially available to us in our imperfections and flaws. God loves us because of our cracks, not in spite of them. They're like openings where God's love can seep in. Because I don't have to be or appear to be perfect or even have it put together that much. In response to my note, Chrissy, our parish administrator, sent me a picture of what's called a Japanese kintsugi pot, which translates as golden repair. I don't know if you've seen those, but it's the Japanese art of repairing broken pottery by mending broken pieces together with silver or gold or platinum. And in the process, this ordinary broken thing becomes a lustrous thing of beauty. It spoke to me. Because I think that's how God's love works with us. It makes our broken parts places of great, great beauty. I don't know whether the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice or not, but the bishop and the prophet Jeremiah and Dietrich Bonhoeffer remind me that either way we are called to witness. Like our partners in the SETF, our friends in the women's shelter, orphans in the wisdom house, we witness. We don't wilt away. We don't ignore but we put ourselves in the midst. We witness, because as Bonhoeffer said in that time of deep darkness that he experienced, that our friends in Syria are experiencing right now, there remains for us only the very narrow way, often extremely difficult to find, of living every day as if it were our last, and yet living in faith and responsibility as though there were to be a great future. It is not easy to be brave, and keep that spirit alive, but it is imperative. We witness because we're made for hope, even though we're cracked, we're broken, we're in pain, because in those cracks, God's love shines brighter than gold.